Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore what the world might look like on the other side of Web3 adoption. Before we hop into the show, a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy around Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Kevin Owaki, who is the founder of Gitcoin. He's currently building Super Modular, which is a regen venture studio. Kevin, I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, big fan of you, Chase, and glad to be here. Well, I so appreciate that, and I'm super excited to have you on the show. I guess before we dive into all of the things that you're working on and thinking about, it might be helpful to give a little bit of background on you, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, I've always been a software engineer, and I've really enjoyed building internet properties and just being involved in internet culture. I have a computer science degree from University of Delaware in 2006. And uh, while I was in university, I was actually running a Web1 business out of my uh, dorm room. And I remember uh, I was at the time working at Outback Steakhouse as a busboy. And uh, there were times when I would make more money off of my internet business while I was working <laughs> than I did as a busboy at Outback Steakhouse. And that was like, oh, entrepreneurship is cool. Like if I take the unbeaten path, there's things that I can discover there. And there's a way I could maybe even support myself by doing that. And so, yeah, I've just kind of been building software in Web 1 and Web 2 and, and now in Web 3. I fell down the crypto rabbit hole when I, well, there's two rabbit holes I fell down in my career. Uh, the first was that after I graduated from U University of Delaware, it was a public university and they just kind of push you into corporate America. You know, it's Delaware and there's a lot of banks there. So I was like, oh, I guess I have to go work at a bank now that I've graduated. I, like I just hated it so much. The culture was awful. The tech they were using was old. It's very hierarchical. And when the Facebook platform came out, I was building Facebook games. And I again hit a point in which I was making more money off of my Facebook games than I was off of my like day corporate job. And I was like, oh, like maybe I could go be an entrepreneur and do that full time. And after a little bit of hustle, I fell down the web to entrepreneurship rabbit hole by going through Techstars, which is a seed stage accelerator. They kind of take three people in a garage and turn you into entrepreneurs that can pitch investors. And so I was the CTO and VP engineering of several different Techstars portfolio companies for about 10 years. And during that time, I learned two things. I recruited about 40 software engineers onto teams that I was on during those times. And I learned that uh, recruiters cost a lot, but it's actually not that hard to learn how to recruit. And then the second thing that I learned was that open source software is the foundation of everything that we're building in the web. Uh, and there's been a study that says that $400 billion per year in economic value is created by open source. And I just felt like it was a huge in injustice that there's no way to make money for working on open source. And those are the things that brought me down the rabbit hole of founding Gitcoin in 2017. What if I could build a place where developers could get coins in exchange for working on software? But uh, I mean, I guess like another vector that you could take on that is that I was really just throwing spaghetti at the wall. I've built a couple different crypto side projects. I think Gitcoin's like my fifth 
side project that I tried to launch. Um, and uh, I just kept trying things and iterating. And even like Gitcoin started as a bounty network, but it evolved into Gitcoin grants and then Gitcoin grants evolved into Gitcoin DAO. So there's just like an evolutionary nature to these things when you're an entrepreneur where you're trying to figure out what the market need is and what's the right positioning. And, and I've always just found that you've got to build things that probably no one's going to want, but you learn from them. And then that gives you a better foundation for the, for the next iteration. So yeah, fell down the crypto rabbit hole by being a uh, software engineer and a web two entrepreneur, I guess, is the TLDR. I did not realize that, um, that that was some of the context that you were coming from in terms of web one and some Mm -hmm. of the web two stuff. So that's really interesting. I think one of the things that I really respect and appreciate you um, for is this movement that you've been at sort of the forefront of and leading around regenerative crypto and and using crypto to build this world that's actually better than the one we have today. And also Mm -hmm. you wrote this phenomenal uh, book and sort of manifesto around regenerative crypto economics called The Green Pill. And so I would love maybe for you to give a little bit of context around that. Um, But I also want to understand what motivates you to push that forward, because I think you really are one of the unique people in the space that feels like you're coming from this place that is really grounded in something that is like tapping into what crypto could be beyond these like Ponzi's and sort of like economic motivations. So would love to have a little bit of context on that and then also what motivates you around it. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm on your podcast, so I guess I've got to uh, to shill the book, Green Pilled, How uh, Crypto Can Regenerate the World, first and foremost. So you can go to greenpill.party and you can check out this book that I wrote called How Crypto Can Regenerate the World. And um, I sell it for uh, 1337, the digital copy, because, you know, that's the meme number. But I actually <laughs> don't care about the revenue. I just want people to, like, read these ideas. And um, so uh, for listeners of your podcast, if you put in the discount code Chase Chapman on checkout, you'll get it for free. And I love um, that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, people are hopefully already intrinsically interested because they're listening to this podcast. But use code Chase Chapman, go to greenpill.party and you can download the book for free. I put 100 uses on this coupon code. So um, anyway, but you asked me uh, about the regen movement. So um, I believe that with crypto, there's a first principles argument that you can make. And by the way, there's two ways, I think, great ways of deriving knowledge empirical, which is like things that you see in the market. And then there's like a priori knowledge, which is deduced from first principles, right? So um, with crypto, I think that one of the big opportunities that I see is that we can now program our values into our money. And so if we value the commons, if we value regenerative things instead of degenerative things, then we can build economic systems that uh, are more regenerative. And, you know, that's like the a priori argument for how we can regenerate the world with crypto. But the empirical uh, sort of observational argument for people who aren't into my deductions from first principles is Gitcoin. So you can go to Gitcoin.co slash results and you can see that there's been $72 million worth of funding for public goods through Gitcoin. Gitcoin is a place that you can get coins if you're working on public goods. And uh, the way that, you know, it's just it's just kind of like really very funny that I went down this rabbit hole of, oh, I want to help fund open source software development. And then uh, just kind of like fell ass backwards into this idea of, oh, we could fund all digital public goods with crypto economics. And there's a mechanism called quadratic funding that Vitalik Buterin invented that I've kind of brought to market 
in the early days of Gitcoin that has sort of proven that this is possible in a, in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, I say that Gitcoin has had a couple different stages. Uh, we were incubated by consensus. And then in 2021, we spun out a consensus and formed a C-Corp called Gitcoin Holdings. And then the Gitcoin DAO launched and Gitcoin is now a DAO uh, from which I have disaffiliated and it's now its own decentralized thing. And the reason the reason why we've uh, I, I disaffiliated from Gitcoin DAO is we wanted decentralization, right? If we're going to build a crowdfunding platform for the Ethereum ecosystem and fund its digital public goods, you shouldn't, shouldn't have a centralized pillar of a decentralized ecosystem. People need credible neutrality in their public goods funding mechanisms. And so by having a decentralized protocol instead of a company that uh, funds their digital public goods, then we have a more credible market position for Gitcoin to be a substrate through which digital public goods are funded. But around the time that we had proven all of this at Gitcoin, I started to adopt a more pluralistic mindset towards how we're going to fund public goods in the future. And that's because, you know, I think Gitcoin was one of the first people to the the regen dance, the public goods dance. And uh, I think what we realized is quadratic funding and Gitcoin grants is great, but it's not the only mechanism out there. There is retroactive public goods funding out there. Uh, there are tools like Coordinate that people can earn an income with in in Web3. Uh, there's Givus, there's CLR Fund, uh, there's Open Collective, there's the Protocol Guild, which is rewarding developers that are working on the Ethereum protocol. So pluralism at the base layer of everything that we're doing is the translation for me from just being like the Gitcoin guy to being the green <laughs> pill regenerative crypto economics movement. How can I build a channel for greater combinations of strength and intelligence to come together, not only on Gitcoin by funding these things, but the Green Pill podcast and the Green Pill book is talking about how we can design more of these things. And I'd say that the sort of apex of what I'm trying to do with Regen Web 3 is how can we rotate capital and talent away from the projects that have the best Ponzi-nomics and towards the projects that are going to have the best impact on the world and are going to be regenerative for the world. And so that's the design space that I think that I'm really exploring right now. And, um, you know, I've, I wrote the book, like I said, Green Pill, How Crypto Can Regenerate the World, which you can get at greenpill.party and use code Chase Chapman to get 100% off. But uh, so that book is called How Crypto Can Regenerate the World. And in three years, I would like to be able to write the book How Crypto Is Regenerating the World. So this is a challenge to your listeners to, to actually make it true. I absolutely love that. And I think something that comes to mind for me when you think about like pluralism and this idea that that you mentioned and that you often talk about around programming our values into our money, something that like feels true for me when we think about impact and, and all of these things is that capitalism as a system today is, I don't want to use the word easy or successful, but in lieu of another word, I'll use those terms. Partially because like the core value of it is optimizing for more or for, um, you know, greater amounts of money or, or resources or whatever it might be. And so one of the like interesting questions that comes up for me around what it means to build regenerative systems where, to your point, around talent and resources being put towards things that are actually creating positive impact mm -hmm. um, the way that we measure that today with capitalistic systems is just does it yield more money? And mm -hmm. I think my question around some of this stuff is like, okay, if we want to create systems where we're putting talent and resources towards things with positive impact, how do we actually measure positive impact? And like, 
even with all the stuff with FTX that's blown up recently around effective altruism, which we don't necessarily need to get into that whole thing, but it is creating these questions around like, how do you measure impact? What does that mean? Um, what are we willing to give up for that impact to to come to life? Like, I'm curious how you approach that side of this. Yeah. Well, uh, oh man, this is such a <laughs> a wide open aperture of a question, and uh, I'm gonna do my best to uh, to frame how I think about it. And I think that a problem well understood is is half addressed. So, you know, your comments about capitalism sort of remind me of that. Uh, that Winston Churchill quote, who said, I think Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others <laughs> that have been tried. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's a similar meme about capitalism where it's the worst economic system, except for all the others that have, that have been tried. And, um, I, I think that really what we're trying to do in this design space is try to figure out new forms of digital democracy and capital allocation, um, and we're trying to democratize economies. And, uh, and so the design space for me is how do we build mechanisms that allow us to achieve our shared needs? And, and, you know, like, you know, quadratic funding is an example of a way of measuring impact. Um, and, and by the way, like we want to take the best out of, um, out of all these different systems that have existed before, like capitalism is really great for projects where you're building a product where you can capture value. You deliver an iPhone, you deliver a widget and you sell it for revenue and you're able to capture value for that. But it doesn't work really good for public goods, things like open source software, which create $400 billion per year in economic value, but there's no way to capture value for that. So how do we collapse the distance between value created and value captured is the design space. And we now have programmable money. So how can we program our values, which is we value public goods, we value open source software and clean air and a livable climate and our privacy. How do we build business models so that people who are working on those things can quit their jobs at fucking Chase Bank and go work on the commons? That's the design space. So there's a pluralism of mechanisms that are going to allow us to do that. And I'll just run down a few real, real TLDR style. Um, uh, Gitcoin Grants runs on quadratic funding. And the way that quadratic funding works is that uh, there's a matching campaign that happens every quarter where $3 million is raised from large donors in the ecosystem that want to support the ecosystem. That's their altruistic motivation. And their maybe more cynical self-serving motivation is they want to build their brand and their association with Gitcoin allows them to do that. Anyway, we have $3 million and we allocate that to the results of a crowdfunding campaign that is... Uh, basically measuring the what the crowd values, and it, and the cool thing about quadratic funding is that it is that it's very democratic. If you have a project that raises a hundred dollars from a hundred contributors, and I have a project that raises money only from whales, a hundred dollars from one contributor, then you're going to get ninety nine percent of the matching pool because Chase Chapman is way more democratically popular than my project. And um, what's cool about that is that you're pushing power to the edges. And you're allocating that matching fund to the projects that are most democratically supported by the most people. And also it gets people off their butt to give a dollar at a time because a dollar of a contribution can have $100 or $1,000 worth of impact, uh, depending on how many people are democratically matching the, or uh, contributing to the project. There was a, a controversy in Gitcoin Grants Round 13 where Coin Center, a $1 contribution to them was going to be worth $1,000. And all these Bitcoin maxis started accusing Gitcoin of being like a Ponzi scheme because they didn't get how quadratic funding works. It's like that powerful. Um, 
anyway, so you asked me, how do we measure impact? Uh, turns out how many people are willing to worth give a dollar each to these things is like a pretty good way of measuring which public goods do people actually care about. There's problems with it, which is like, how do you keep topping up the matching funds? How do you make sure people aren't making up identities? But like all in all, quadratic funding is a pretty elegant mechanism. Um, there's other mechanisms for determining what is impact. Uh, retroactive public goods funding is one that Vitalik has been uh, has been advancing recently with the Optimism team, where basically you have a uh, group of experts that will, at some point in the future, be doing an evaluation of which projects actually had an impact. And the idea here is that it's easier to understand who has had an impact in retrospect than it is to speculate about who's going to have an impact in the future. So um, Optimism takes a million dollars worth of their sequencer fees and airdrops them back to people who have an impact on public goods. Projects like Ethers JS, uh, projects, projects like Prismatic Labs that have worked on the protocol layer and have been working on public goods. And what's cool about that is that if you have a reasonable expectation that in the future, your public goods funding is going to be retroactively rewarded with enough money that incentivizes you today to work on public goods funding. And what if we could take the entire market-based mechanism through which VCs invest in like the next pets.com or the next photo sharing app is so that they can get a billion dollar exit by selling to Google one day. What if they could have an exit by retroactive public goods funding because optimism is is dropping hundreds of billions of dollars worth of projects that have public goods. You, you, you then create an incentive in the present for VCs to invest in public goods, use the market-based in collective intelligence mechanism that capitalism uses to get us better iPhones and better, you know, like widgets and stuff. And you point it towards public goods funding. And that's a cool thing about retroactive public goods funding. I, I, I could stop there. Or I could maybe give like one more example of how we can determine impact. Let's do one more example. Okay. Uh, here's, here's a cool one that I'm working on. It's called hyperserts. And uh, Chase, are you familiar with, with carbon credits at all? Yes. Yeah. So very basically, very, ba very basically like um, carbon credits are a way of saying, Hey, I took 10 tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. And then you financialize that asset and you sell it on the open market. So like a farmer in Ecuador who decides not to clear cut their uh, forest can issue a carbon credit and say, hey, this is worth 10 tons of carbon. And then if I'm some ESG aware investor in the United States, I can pay down my carbon impact by buying that, uh, that carbon credit. And what this does is it creates a market in which people who are taking carbon out of the atmosphere, either with carbon sinks or some other form, can financialize that and then get revenue for keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, so what if we took carbon credits and we generalized them to work on any vector of impact? So hypercerts are that. Hypercerts can say, oh, I funded 10 months of this open source project. I took 10 people out of poverty. I fixed 10 potholes out in front of my house. And so what we're doing with Hypercerts, which like there's an alpha live at hypercerts.xyz. This is a collaboration between my company, Supermodular, and Protocol Labs. Basically, what we're doing is we're allowing Hypercerts to be issued on any impact vector. So anyone who is creating positive impact can issue a Hypercert. And then what we're doing is uh, trying to bootstrap buy pressure for those Hypercerts. So basically... Mm -hmm. 
what would like what would have to be true for us to move from like virtue signaling and social media saying I care about this cause to having proof of virtue in Web three where you purchase this hypercert either because you want to impress your friends I don't know maybe we'll do like an integration into Tinder so that you can show how virtuous you are <laughs> to your upcoming dates or something like that or maybe I can convince Vitalik to tweet about how hypercerts are cool and that since he's the alpha nerd of the ecosystem everyone will buy them. Um, but you know, the real opportunity is like, maybe, I don't know, we could fork Gitcoin grants protocol and, um, make it so that every time you fund a Gitcoin grant, you're actually purchasing a hypercert. And so, so the point is that if you can create enough buy pressure, what you've done is you've just taken any impact out, any DAO that is having a positive impact on the world. And you've given them a business model because they're creating value for the world. They can issue hypercerts and then they can just sell those hypercerts to people who care about those causes and want a virtue signal about them. And what's cool about that is we've, we've collapsed the distance between value creation and value capture. That impact out no longer has to go and run a complicated fundraising dialing for dollars operation in order to keep themselves afloat. They don't have to go like do consulting to keep their impact stuff afloat. They can just create impact. They can get rewarded for that impact and they can scale up the amount of impact that they're having. So you're collapsing the distance between value creation and value capture and you're able to fund your impact out with this primitive of hypercerts. Now there's a problem in the middle of that, which is like, why don't I just issue a dog shit hypercert and like say that I'm doing a good job when I'm not? And so there's a role for a third category in this market of uh, issuers of hypercerts and purchasers of hypercerts, which is the evaluator of the hypercert. And it's typically a domain expert that say understands the domain of open source software and can say, yeah, this open source project actually had impact and therefore it's you know it's got a higher market value according to uh, according to this value so there's a marketplace for impact evaluators and the reputation of impact evaluators to create legitimacy around these hypercerts so it's a triple sided marketplace between people who are doing good people who are financially supporting those who are doing good and the people who are evaluating the impact for that so um you asked i'm going to i'm going to zoom out there cuz i i think that i'm i'm kind of on a tear right now quadratic funding retroactive public goods funding and hypercerts are three examples of how we can measure impact in a decentralized way using the power of blockchain technology and without imbuing a monolithic government that is the kingmaker of who gets the public goods funding we're creating decentralized markets for supporting public goods and for creating impact and uh, we can do that all because we can program our values into our money, just to bring it back to the opening statement there. And I think that that's like the cool thing about Web3. I would love to channel more capital and talent into these type of mechanisms. Yeah, I love that. And I think the way that that you think about a lot of those things is is really interesting, like this combination of um, both first principles thinking and this like empirical evidence one mm -hmm. thing that my brain goes to that I would love to hear your thoughts on is, you know, there, there of course is, I think, an opportunity to build systems that are better, even if what I'm about to say is also true. But I think like the financialization of everything and almost like turning a lot of things into virtue signaling is like a double-edged sword in some ways where we're quantifying impact and able to program these values into our money and into these systems. Um, on the flip side, we also do create these systems where our own actions are very heavily influenced by um, either things that might look good to other people. So, you know, you might do things just because you want other people to see that you're doing them as opposed to this like more authentic 
I, I guess I would call it authentic like reason for doing something that's going to benefit other people. And so I'm curious how you think about that potential. Yeah. So what I heard there, and I'll start with, is that there's a double-edged sword here. And by the way, being able to program your values into your money is a double-edged sword. <laughs> uh, because if you value Ponzi schemes and rugs, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> and like, right. let's take a little look at the rear view mirror as I answer mm-hmm. this question. But what if, you know, you know, I take an iterative evolutionary view to this space. You know, the the genie's out of the bottle. The Byzantine general's problem is out of the Pandora's box with Web3. And we're now in this iterative evolutionary game of uh, bull bear cycle. And like in the bull cycle, way too many projects are going to be funded. And in the bear cycle, many more projects than deserve it are not going to make it. And it's through that evolutionary market selection that we're going to evolve from Bitcoin into the ecosystem of centralized exchanges around Bitcoin to Ethereum, to the Ethereum forks, to layer twos, to DeFi and to DAO. There's an iterative evolutionary game. And like, how, how can we speed run that evolutionary process so that we evolve past like this Ponzi's and the viruses and the cancers and towards like the keystone species of Web3, the um, keystone species are like species upon which all other species depend on. How can we evolve into like the market equivalent of dolphins and mycelial networks and like humans? Um, although there's an argument to be made that key- humans aren't a great keystone species, but we'll save that for another podcast. Um, anyway, so there's a double-edged sword with these things, but how can we evolve the de- degenerative things, which by the way, by definition, they're degenerating. So they're going to collapse into the regenerative things, which by definition are going to regenerate the world because they have resource allocation that is regenerating over time and is resistant to shocks as opposed to degenerative things, which are not resistant to shocks and resources go down over time. So how can we evolve this ecosystem such that it is more regenerative and um, symbiotic relationships between the organisms and the ecosystems as opposed to parasitic or degenerate opportunities. And so, mm-hmm. so I think that like, you know, that's, that's my framing. Um, and you said that, yeah, this is a double-edged sword. Um, we can program our values into our money. So that means we can create b- bigger Ponzi schemes and decentralized casinos, or it means that we can create a market-based mechanism that, funds public goods and we can augment the nation state's infrastructure for funding public goods with markets and do it in a better way. And by the way, you know, like democracy is the worst system except for all the others that have been tried and we're just like trying new stuff here. So mm-hmm. the double-edged sword is that um, what if our values are bad if, and we program those values into our money? Um, you also talked about the financialization of everything. And I, I think that that's where I'll, I'll probably end this little monologue, which is like, you know, are we in Web3, are we trying to economize democracies? Or are we trying to democratize economies? And I think that the perspective really depends on where you ask. I'm really into the idea of democratizing economies. And one of the things that I think that is a core concept that is part of the Green Pill book that that I think is, is something that is useful in answering this question is this idea that there are eight forms of capital instead of just one form of capital. Financial capital is the one that people are, are aware of. And Gregory Landua, who's one of the people who's been on my podcast and is in the Green, Green Pill book, is the one who wrote this about eight forms of capital. So there is cultural capital, spiritual capital, experiential capital, intellectual capital. This podcast, by the way, is an example of intellectual capital. There's living capital, there's material capital, and there's social capital. So how do we build a financial system in which the um, financial capital is in service to our social capital and to our spiritual capital and regenerates our spiritual capital 
um, how do we create a financial system in which uh, in, in which our financial system is subservient to living capital, which means biodiversity and material capital, which means natural resources, like keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. And I think that one of the sort of problems that I see is that money has become an, an not just a means to other ends in the existing economic system. It has become an end in itself for people that just want to accumulate more wealth and they want to create their own little private oasis while the rest of the world burns. And so um, I think that that's kind of like the design space that I'm really uh, trying to rotate people towards is like you said, uh, we can create systems where our social structures are influences it, by things that we want to see from from other people. And, and I think that like, yeah, there's there's danger there. But like, what if we could harness that in order to create a more regenerative world? And, and you know, people are kind of lacking hope right now. And I think that there's like this cynicism that comes from coming out of a crumbling industrial age economy and how can we rotate people into a more optimistic view into the information age by correcting the problems with web two with web three. So, you know, I don't know that I totally answered your question, but I think that that's kind of some of the ways that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really interesting because a, I think this idea that like, we don't need to build a perfect system in terms of evolutionary systems. We just need to build one that's better than the one that we have now, which I mm -hmm. think is a really powerful starting point that you kind of were, were getting at. And then the mm -hmm. other interesting thing around like optimizing for financial capital today and instead of trying to think about financial capital as serving other types of capital, it kind of makes me think about all the ways in which our society like glamorizes being wealthy and really makes wealth this thing that everyone should optimize for. And that has all these consequences that we don't even realize. Like a lot of them are so subconscious that often you don't even understand that you're optimizing for money or why you're optimizing for money. And so there's something really interesting about like, what if we glamorized spiritual capital to the same degree as a society that mm. we often glamorize financial capital? Even if we don't realize it or if sometimes we do things that are a little bit weird <laughs> as a result of glamorizing different types of capital, it would probably totally change the relationship that we as individuals subconsciously have and consciously have with the world mm. around us. And like, even if that means that sometimes we're virtue signaling or sometimes we're doing things because, you know, we're, we're doing like building certain types of public goods because we anticipate potentially getting retroactive funding. Mm -hmm. That it, it almost doesn't matter in some cases because at least the outcome is better than if we were only optimizing for financial capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a, a a couple thoughts there. Um, so, I mean, uh, maybe I'll start with what you said about virtue signaling. Um, I, I think that one of the problems with Web two is that it it became really easy to signal virtues. Um, and, you know, like the whole social media thing is it has turned people into these like going from like having one on one relationships with everyone to trying to build an audience is basically just this this game that you play where we're all becoming these little narcissists that are that are trying to like develop influence within our each of our niches. And so there's an evolutionary pressure for people who want to signal how virtuous they are um, in whatever value system. But on Web3 social media it's all so cheap and it's like this phony, it's like phony social capital. Like likes are the ultimate shitcoin coin <laughs> uh, because there's, in, there's infinite of them. Right. And just anything that like looks good in a tweet, I will like, and that virtue signal is really cheap. Like I might not even have that virtue, 
Um, and you know, I, I think that really one of these opportunities that I see with hyperserts is what if we could have proof of virtue where you could show like, oh, like cryptographically, provably, I actually do have these virtues and I'm displaying proudly that I have funded X amount of open source software or spiritual capital or um, different things of that that nature. And, um, you know, I, so I do think that there's an opportunity to create communities that it, that more deeply connected what virtues you actually have and what impact you're having in the world to the actual virtue in that. And, you know, that takes that narcissistic tendency to build an audience and like to, to and connects it to the actual good that you're having in the world, which which I think is a, a positive, a positive thing. And, you know, I, I really um, I really think that there's an opportunity with what you said about glamorizing different types of capital where um, this is going to not be politically correct. And hopefully I don't get canceled for saying this, but like with U.S. <laughs> dollars and with Bitcoin, which are like the most um commoditized forms of capital that are out there. It's like everything sort of reduces down to like glamorizing financial capital and things that translate into financial capital in a capitalist economy. And so there's kind of like a commodification of our value system where where like we value wealth because it's a, a bridge into other things that we can consume in status symbols. But what if with programmable money, we could create these economies that are local economies that value a local regeneration of the land or that value the public goods in your local community? Or we could create community currencies that aren't geographic based, but are based off of how much you care for digital public goods or like privacy. And like in a way, like Zcash is kind of like the privacy coin, which is like a social system. And so how can we create local economies? This is actually why, like when Bitcoiners call Ethereum a shitcoin and like everything that's not Bitcoin is shitcoin. I actually think that it's not only wrong, it's actually the exact opposite of what we should be trying to do. We should try be trying to create like little local community currencies for every little thing that value like these carbon credit coins and different parts of cultural capital that allow communities to have their own bespoke, unique values. And there can be a transfer into the commodified money from those local community currencies that is based off of the gross domestic product of those local currencies that they're able to create and export to the rest of the world. But how can we inflate all these little, I mean, bubbles isn't the right word, but like uh, safe containers through which we can value things that are not financial capital. And if that could become a significant portion of the economy, then we could change and influence culture in order to, to, to value those things. So I think that that's the opportunity space. And we'll see where it goes, but that's at least the movement that I'd like to create. Yeah, there's definitely like an interesting balance here where my brain goes to, yes, all of those things make sense to exist and should exist. And then my brain goes to, okay, but then how are they valued? And of course, today, the shorthand for how is something valued is a price, which is also a specific value system. Like that's not necessarily the right system for even thinking about the value of these things. But it's it's weird because we're kind of straddling like this new world where we see the opportunity for programming values into I don't mm-hmm. even know if we call it money like maybe I don't know like maybe these things aren't even called money but um but a lot of these efforts are also like they need people who are working on them need to pay their bills and so there's there's kind of like this weird dynamic between um, the creation of new types of artifacts and assets and all these things that can be localized and and value driven while also acknowledging that the people who are working on those things will have to pay their rent and so somehow mm. 
that financial value needs to be there. You know, like there's kind of this weird dynamic going on. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Chase, you taught me this thing when you came on the Green Pill podcast uh, called Gal's Law, which states that all complex systems that work evolve from simpler systems that work. So we now have programmable Mm. money and we have solidity, which is, I mean, maybe not a simple system, but it's simpler than, (laughs) you know, a thousand complex economies. And so maybe we have the starting conditions to explore this design space. By the way, check out Chase's uh, appearance on Green Pill. It's it's one of my favorite podcasts that we've that we've done over there. Well, I appreciate that. It was so fun to jam, and and I love all of your episodes. You do truly like a phenomenal job. It's one of my favorite podcasts in the space. Um, Kevin, before we wrap up, I have a question for you that is kind of like relatively unrelated to this stuff, but I think matters a lot in the context of just everything that's going on right now and the craziness. Mm. You've survived through bear markets in crypto. You've continued to build Gitcoin. Now Gitcoin has sort of grown up and and is its own DAO and is one of the most impactful projects in the space. For people who are like either just not even necessarily down bad, I think like just the whole vibe in crypto right now is definitely challenging. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to people, I guess, first, and then I have a follow-up question for you. Got it. Okay. Um, well, I think that the metagame in um, bear markets is just to survive. So as much as you can be a cockroach, uh, which is uh, an unglamorous way of saying, don't don't die, uh, then do it. And, you know, Gitcoin, and my work in the space, I've been through a couple of different bear markets. And, and you kind of learn that, that uh that you know things might be bad but you can at least just grunt your head and focus on building grunt your head up put your head down and uh and just focus on building and and focus on what gives you energy uh which for me you know was like rage coding through (laughs) all of the problems (laughs) that we had last bear market um and then you know in the in the bull market that's that's kind of the opportunity to make moves and um you know, switch trade up and, and, and try new things and get a little bit weird. And so I, I think that you just kind of have to ride the waves of, of the market, but, you know, Gitcoin grants, which is as far as I know, one of the number one crowdfunding platforms in the ecosystem is designed to make it easier to survive the bear markets. I think that, uh, you know, the fact I met probably a dozen people that have told me that they survived the last bear market because of the financial compensation they got on Gitcoin grants. So maybe one wow. tangible piece of advice is open up a Gitcoin grant. And then, you know, if you're having an impact, then it'll help you survive the bear market. But there's, there's lots of little it, tidbits of advice that people can, um, that, that I could maybe drop. Maybe one last one I'll say is like, focus on what intrinsically motivates you instead of just what's, what's financially, uh, rewarding um i think that bear markets are a really great time to learn new skills and to and to sharpen your sharpen your tools and sharpen your thinking about things because they last so long and you need something to occupy your time anyway so you might as well do something productive with it but uh yeah um everyone is different you got to manage your own psychology that's just how i manage my own psychology that advice is not good for everyone just people who think like me maybe not financial advice do your own research hashtag not psychological advice The one other question on this I have for you is, I think this is especially true in bull markets and maybe a bear market's an opportunity to do this, but 
One of the things that I've noticed in the space is it is easy for people to get swept up in all of the craziness and whether that means, you know, farming like the latest Ponzi or to your point, like chasing something that is more monetarily driven, whatever. Something that I've always really respected about your work and and Gitcoin and, and all of that is really being grounded in what feels right instead of what feels, I don't know, like the the latest Ponzi or whatever. I'm curious what that has looked like for you to stay grounded in that. What's the thing about like, there's this quote that like people will do the right thing after they've tried all the wrong things <laughs> and they've run out of options. Uh, like people, people like project, like, cause I'm like the public goods guy where people will project all these like virtues on me, but it's not true. Like I'm just, I'm just like a guy. Um, and like, I have to pay my mortgage too. And like, by the way, I was doing technical analysis before I got into <laughs> building Gitcoin. I actually like tried to start like an open source AI based hedge fund in the space. Mm. That was one of my failed side projects coming into this. So like, it's really just that like, I've tried a bunch of other stuff. And um, I think what I realized was that I would be totally commodified. Um, Mm. if, if I was just chasing the next thing and like, you know, like a dog chasing a car, I was just chasing the next one that came by. Um, and with Gitcoin, it really felt like I discovered something important. I mean, the first thing that I discovered was that I'm good at recruiting software engineers. I know how to talk software (laughs) engineer and I know how to talk like, um, you know, like normal culture speak also. Um, so, okay. So like I can bring software engineers in the space and it's like selling pickaxes to the gold miners. Like everyone's going to need software developers because everything here mm-hmm. is digital. So like, that's how I kind of got my wedge with Gitcoin. And Balaji talks about in his network state stuff, like what is your one commandment that you think the rest of the world is wrong about? And the example that he gives in the network state book is like, oh, we have the ketosis people that think that carbs are bad. And that's their one commandment is that we always want to be in ketosis and like veganism is an example of this like their one commandment is that eating meat or meat-based products are wrong my one commandment was oh i want to help software developers find a better job i want to support open source software that one commandment later evolved into digital public goods and supporting those that's a superset of open source software and then that later evolved into like regen web3 how can we regenerate web3 with these technologies. And so I think that you really have to develop deep conviction in whatever your one commandment is. And maybe as you're like chasing those cars or you're like yield farming or whatever, you're being commodified, you're learning about the market and you're starting to develop conviction on something way before anyone else is. And by the way, as you get better at this, you can make bigger fucking bets. Like Gitcoin was like something I started. It took, it cost me 20 K to launch Gitcoin because you know, I coded it all myself and now Gitcoin grants has, done 72 million dollars worth of funding for open source so you can just kind of see the trend line of like making bigger bets about my one commandment and now we're trying to create a whole regenerative pluralistic civilizational scale funding for public goods and regenerative stuff so like the as you develop more conviction and and you get good at like placing these bets and also you have lots of failures i have lots of failures um (laughs) you'll you'll kind of like get better at at making those bets and so um, I think you got to develop that conviction and and double down on um, occupying mimetic space in a in a place where that you think is going to be valuable one day because the rest of the world will come around to to your view and like by the way this is what I'm doing with trying to create a movement that that channels capital and talent into a more regenerative Web three I think that that's inevitable and since I occupied that mimetic space uh, first because of my one commandment. 
then uh, you know, hopefully that that prop that momentum propagates into more good things for for my portfolio of work. So uh, TLDR, develop a one commandment, which is something that you believe that you think the rest of the world is wrong about, but they'll eventually come around to your view and just double down on that where you have conviction. Yeah, I really love that. And actually, one last question I have for you. I was talking to a friend of mine and I was telling him that you're coming on the podcast and I was like, is there anything you think I have to ask Kevin about? And mm. you just brought it up. So of course I'd ask you now. He was like, the thing that I think Kevin is amazing at is memetics and navigating existing memetics, pushing your own memetics, but also like engaging with new memes. Mm. And so this is kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's totally related to the the one commandment stuff, but I am curious how you think about navigating memetics and that space in Web3 yeah. in particular, because it's changing a lot. Yeah, well, it's very nice and uh, positive of your friend to say that about me. The truth is that I'm just horribly addicted to Twitter. <laughs> So, uh, you know, um, but no, so the, the, the memetic game is trying to, um, basically what you're looking for ROI, uh, in your, everyone has scarcity of attention. And so what you're trying to do is pack as much of a visceral reaction into a tweet or an image And the ROI is basically the biggest visceral reaction you can get over the easiest thing to understand. So the investment of the user's attention, the return they get is some sort of dopamine rush for that. Okay. So basically my problem is that I like my, my wife calls me captain cerebral. Cause I've like, I mean, listen, listen to me right now. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> like, um, there's a certain amount of, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Just like it's the computer science degree or something that, that like, I think like this and I talk like this, but like, what is a way that I can capture, like, think about like coal becoming like a diamond. Like what is the way that you can compress as much of this information into the smallest mimetic structure possible, mm. add as much visceral, um, response into it for the people. And, and, and here's the real kicker. How can you change their belief system? in that memetic package, right? Because information mm. wants to duplicate and people, if you hit the retreat button, then you can exponentially create a new memetic structure, but it has to fit within the formula of low investment of user attention, high visceral output. And if you can attach a rider of, oh wait, crypto could regenerate the world. I never thought about it that way. Then that's just like the the chef's kiss. I know we're not doing a video, <laughs> uh, but that's the, that's the chef's kiss of memetics. But um, it was yeah, audible know. still. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't wait for that to be made into a soundbite. But, <laughs> but, you know, I honestly like the truth is that I'm just like addicted to Twitter. And um, and I think it's a lot of fun to to share ideas. Um, the Green Pill book, by the way, is like I just wrote a tweet when I was on a run and I was like on I had my runners high and I just tweeted like, hey, should I write a book about regenerative crypto economics? It can be all about how like crypto could be good for the world one day. And like I got I think I got like 500 likes on that. And that's what gave me the market feedback to actually create the green pill book. Like I knew there was demand for it. And so there's this feedback loop with your audience on Twitter, where over time you can gain more conviction in your one commandment by sharing ideas and sharing memes about it over time. And so I think that it can be viewed in that lens also. So, um, Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll try to answer your question by creating a meme about how to create memes. And then this can be the progenitor of that, but thanks for the question. 
Truly full circle. Yeah, I think wrapping this up, something that keeps coming to mind for me, even with something like memetics or with this idea of being able to quantify different types of capital beyond financial capital, a lot of this comes down to how can we leverage the way that we know human brains work, the way that we know Mm. markets work to really build something or, or create outcomes that are better than the ones we have today. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful and it's rooted in this realism while also bringing this like optimistic viewpoint and approach of saying we can do better with the systems that we have. I think it's a quote that's maybe attributed to Albert Einstein, but, you know, I I think that the quote goes something like this, that being able to hold two opposite ideas in your mind without going insane is, (laughs) is like a measure of intelligence or something like that. And so I always try to like, understand the games that cynics are playing but my resting point is being positive and so i don't want to be like a starry-eyed optimist but i want to i want to be cautiously optimistic i'm like a doomer optimist and i think that like i understand the degen stuff but i'm also trying to create a movement towards regen stuff and there's a lot of those sort of like equal and opposite things that you have to understand the structure of cynicism and optimism at once understand finance and also spiritual capital at the same time. And you just have to like, once you understand how to swim in both of those waters, you can kind of build a bridge between them. And so I think that that's the big opportunity. Like it it kind of goes back to pluralism. Like it's a world where there's many different types of intelligences together. And, and the more you can translate before them and live in a pluralistic way, then I think that's the huge opportunity in this space. And I love computer science, which is like the most logical, semantic, pedantic stuff that you can do. But I also love community building and humans are really irrational and emotional. But like, I love that about them, too. And so that's another example of like opposite ways of thinking that I think that you can from a pluralistic way combine. So um, my podcast with you and your podcast with me is maybe a fun pluralism of how we both view the world. And I can't wait to do another one. Uh, Let's call it in a year from now and see how things have evolved. Yes, I absolutely love that. Kevin, this was so wonderful. Where can people find you? I would highly, as just a side note, your podcast is absolutely phenomenal. So would highly recommend that to anyone. Where can people find your podcast, you, your book, all of the things? Yeah. Um, well, you can go to greenpill.party to get the podcast and a free copy of the digital book with the code Chase Chapman. <laughs> I think I've Ooh, shilled that three times that. so far. <laughs> so if you haven't downloaded it now, go to the site and enter the code and get the free book. Um, and then uh, my my last name is Owaki, O-W-O-C-K-I. And that is my Twitter handle and the way that it, um, I am most commonly known. And you can you can get my memes on Twitter. And also, I got to say, Chase, uh, speaking of Twitter, that you're an absolutely talented memeticist and uh, storyteller as well. So huge admirer of you you. and your podcast and your Twitter and everything that you're doing. So keep up the great work. I so appreciate that. And the admiration is mutual. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kevin. This was so fun. Peace and love. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.